Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Many of our Christian denominations focus most of their preaching and teaching on the New Testament. Well, certainly that makes sense. As followers of Christ, we want to read and hear about Jesus Christ, about the gospel, his message, and the grace of this new covenant. Yet by failing to study the Old Testament, we're missing out on 80% of the Bible, which is every bit as much of God's inspired word as the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when Paul said, all scripture is inspired by God in 2 Timothy 3.16, He was not only including the Old Testament, but he was talking about the Old Testament because most of the New Testament had not yet been codified. So the Old Testament is important. It lays the foundation for everything in the New Testament. One reason many denominations tend to ignore that Old Testament is because they believe that the New Testament Christians have replaced the Old Testament promises for Israel, and thus the church has replaced Israel in God's plans. Is that true? Is God finished with Israel? Has he transferred his promises and prophecies to the church instead? I'm Debbie Blank. Today, we're going to examine what scripture has to say and that very important question. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. When I finished reading the entire Bible for the very first time, I remember how absolutely amazed I was at all of the content and how it was connected. There was such continuity between all 66 books. As I closed the cover at the end of Revelation, I think it was sort of like completing a beautiful picture puzzle and then standing back to take in the amazing finished product. I had read both from the Old and New Testaments all my life, but honestly, in deciding to read the Bible in its entirety, I was prepared for the possibility that I might end up disappointed and that my faith might be shaken. But instead, I gained a wealth of new understanding and some new questions as well. But one thing I absolutely knew for sure was that this was a supernatural book and that God himself must be the author. That's why I believe in the inseparability of the Old and New Testaments. Someone illustrated this so well by saying, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, and in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So. What does the whole Bible tell us about God's relationship with Israel and the church? That's the important question that we want to answer today. Because if we ignore the Old Testament, we're missing all the promises, the history, the prophecies, the poetry, and all the covenants that God established with Israel. And of course, they are pertinent to us today because we can take God's principles in the Old Testament as well as the New and apply them to our lives. But specifically, we need to consider if the New Testament has replaced the old, if the church has replaced Israel, because that's what we're hearing in a lot of places today. I'm going to give you the answer right now. The answer is no, but we want to find that out from Scripture. We want to see what God has to say about his chosen people, Israel. You see, not only in the Old Testament does he tell us about Israel, but he also shows us his character. 
We see him as the creator, obviously, but as the protector, the defender, our savior, our sovereign God, who watched over his people, Israel, even though they disappointed him and turned away from him. And yet God never turned away from them. That right there is the foundation for the New Testament, where even though his people turned away from him when Jesus Christ came as their Messiah, he never turned away from them. Not in the past in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament when Jesus came. There were times when they were disobedient. And we can talk about covenants because covenants run through the Old Testament and help us understand the New Testament. It promises the Messiah. So we know that's so important. That's the, the major prophecy that we look for in the New Testament. So of all the covenants, there was one that was conditional. That means it was dependent upon the behavior of the Israelites. And they broke that several times, and so they suffered the consequences. It was an if-then kind of a thing where if they obeyed, then they were blessed. If they disobeyed, then they were cursed. So they suffered those consequences as a result of the conditional covenant that they broke. But it doesn't mean that the unconditional ones could be broken. They depended on God's faithfulness, and God is always faithful. And that conditional covenant was the law. We're told in Galatians 3, starting with verse 18, it says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise, not a covenant, you'll notice. It goes on to say in verse 19, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator, which is Moses, until the seed should come by whom the promise had been made. And we know from verse 16 that that seed is Jesus Christ. So the law was given to show the Jews what sin was and how they should live to God and for God and not walk in sin. It was designed as a tutor to point them to the Messiah. But once the Messiah came in Jesus Christ, the tutor was no longer necessary. Obviously, we still need to follow the law. It's God's word and it's God's principle in how to stay away from sin. But it was not the law that saved them. And the law really, since it pointed to Jesus, took on a different meaning once Jesus came. Now, we can see that also in the new covenant that's mentioned in Jeremiah 31. In verse 31, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is telling us right there that he gave them the covenant of the Mosaic law, which was different than the new covenant, which we now have in Jesus Christ. So God keeps his promises. So we know that temporarily Israel, when they disobeyed, they were set aside, they were exiled, they suffered the consequences of their disobedience 
to the Ten Commandments, which was often paganism and acting like the pagan countries around them. None of this surprised God. He made preparation for that. He knew that they were going to have to learn what sin was and that they wouldn't be able to be sinless. And that was the reason that they were pointed to the Messiah that was to come. So there are promises that God made that he always keeps. He's not a man that he should lie. He always keeps his promises. We fail. As human beings, we fail. Israel failed, but Israel was not left out of the covenant promise that depended on God. Numbers 23, 29 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not bring it to pass? Of course he is. He's a covenant-keeping God. And as you also mentioned, the Jews sinned against God, but he forgave them. We as Christians sin against God. He forgives us, but he hasn't cast us out of his plans for the future. Why would he cast Israel out of his plans? So why do people think that the church has replaced Israel? Well, the one reason is because in John 1, 11 and 12, we're told that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. That means he came to save the people of Israel. But Israel turned away from him. They did not accept him as their Messiah, at least for the most part. Verse 12 then says, But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Because the Jews rejected Jesus, many people say that God now has rejected the Jews. But wait a minute. If that's the case, then where does it say that in Scripture? It never says that God has rejected the Jews. It does say that the church is the new established group of believers in God's paradigm, but he didn't get rid of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he not only didn't get rid of the Jews, but the whole future before Jesus comes is all about the Jews because he made many promises to them that have yet to be fulfilled, including returning to this earth so that he can establish the kingdom that he promised the Jews they would have on this earth. We can read many of the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled that all deal with the Jews. One of those promises comes from Zechariah 14. I'm just going to read some excerpts from that passage. It says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, obviously, this is over the city of Jerusalem. Well, the city of Jerusalem means nothing unless it is inhabited by God's people. In verse 5, then, of Zechariah 14, it says, Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, that's a promise that the Jews have been expecting all their lives. That's why they missed Christ coming the first time, because they were expecting him to set up that kingdom in Jerusalem. But Christ's first coming was as a servant to die for our sins. His second coming is as a king to reign with his people in Jerusalem. When you were reading about Jerusalem, you were taking it literally. There is a literal place called Jerusalem, and there will be in the future. 
So past, present, and future, in scriptures, that should be taken literally. And yet, sometimes people spiritualize and they kind of do allegories and say, okay, that says Israel, but it really means the church, or it really means the body of believers, because that's the new Israel, or a spiritualized Israel. So do you see that as being one of the main departures as to why some people understand that the Jews are still part of God's plan and people that don't? Yes, I do. Very much so. And we need to consider, too, if God will reject his chosen people that he made all these promises to that have not yet been fulfilled, then will he reject us? Is it possible for us to lose our salvation then if we do something wrong? And if it is, what is it that we could do wrong that we would lose our salvation? Scripture lays out no such plan. The blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can turn us from God. But that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is not accepting Christ in the first place. We're listening to the Holy Spirit, but we're saying no to him, which is blaspheming him and not accepting Christ. It's not something we do after we accept Christ because a believer who has the Holy Spirit living inside of him could not blaspheme Christ. So again, If God would reject the Jews for their sin against him, and they sinned plenty, then he could reject us from our sins. And we know neither one of those are possible because our God is a covenant-keeping promise. He doesn't negate, nor has he anywhere in Scripture, negated the promises to Israel, nor does he include us in the promises. Now, let me say that God does graft the Christians into the basic foundational promises that he gave the Jews, but not all of them. Nowhere is the land of Israel granted to the church as a possession, and yet it's promised to Israel. And they have not yet seen the full fulfillment of that land promise that God gave them in Genesis 15. So there are some areas that we do not inherit or could not inherit from the Jews. However, what we see in the promises God made them is we are grafted into eternal life. We are grafted into the Messiah. We are grafted into the covenant made with Abraham, which says, in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And that is a promise of the Messiah that we are grafted into. In the Abrahamic covenant that we see not only the promises to Israel, the family, the literal family of Abraham, um, which is the land, descendants, fame, God would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, but we also see the seeds of the new covenant promised within the Abrahamic covenant, and both of those covenants are unconditional. One is to the Jews, and one is to all of us who would believe in Jesus Christ. If Israel's been condemned by God and there's no future for the Jewish nation, how do we explain the supernatural survival of the Jewish people over the past 2,000 years? And how do we explain Christ's return to the people as I read in Zechariah 14? And how do we explain God's promises that he made in the Old Testament about them? One of those promises is Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. That tells us that The Lord God, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. 
Now just think about that. Has that fixed order, have the heavenlies departed from God? No, that means that Israel will not depart as a nation before God. That's what he says here. And then he ends with verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Well, is it possible to measure the heavens and the earth? No, it's not. So God will not cast off his people. That's what he says. And this is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is all about how the Israelites have sinned against him and how they're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians taken captive into Babylon and have their city and their sanctuary destroyed. So they're in the midst of hearing and seeing this destruction when God promises them that he is not finished with them, nor will he be until the fixed order has changed. Each time they were exiled, there was a promise that he would bring them back. And each time he has, the most recent as evidenced in 1948, when the modern nation of Israel was born. Now let's look at the New Testament to see what Paul says about the Jews. In Romans 11, 1 and 2, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He's talking about Israel and the Jews. May it never be. But I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So if you want to say that the church has replaced Israel, you've got to cut that verse out of your scripture because God clearly has not rejected them. Consider that Paul wrote this book to the Romans in 58 AD. So that's, give or take, 25 years after Christ's death and 25 years after the establishment of the church. And he's still saying that God hasn't rejected Israel. So you just cited two scriptures, Jeremiah and then Paul in Romans, very clear scriptures. I don't know how you could read either one of those any other way except that God is not rejecting his Jewish people. That's right. Remember, Paul, after he was converted, when he went preaching, he went preaching to the Jews first. He went to the synagogues. Why would he do that if God had rejected the Jews? He wanted his fellow people to know their Messiah that they had rejected and also to hear the promises that God still had for them in the future if they would in fact believe Paul also affirmed God's covenants to the Jews in Hebrews 6. Starting in verse 13, I'm going to read parts of this. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Again, it's written well after the time of Christ. If Christ's life and death and the establishment of the church negated Israel, why would Paul be writing these things after that time? There are churches who will say that when Christ came to earth and fulfilled the messianic promises, then that just completely did away with Israel. Well, no, it didn't, because Jesus was a Jew. He came for his Jews. They may have rejected him, but the beginnings of the church were primarily Jewish. So it's not all Gentiles who are believers in the church. You have many Jews who are also. Well, the first believers in the church were Jewish, and it was predominantly Jewish for quite some time. So Jewish believers come to Christ the same way other believers come to Jesus Christ. They come through faith in Jesus. 
believing the promises from the Old Testament or believing the New Covenant promises in the Old and New Testament, that's what you have to do. That's what's the same for both groups. And that's why Paul said in Romans 11, starting in verse 11, by their transgression, that's the Jewish transgression of not believing in Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, to make the Jews jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches to the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? You see, God plans to bring all Israel into his kingdom. He promises that later in Romans 11, verses 25 to 27, when he says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the new covenant we read a little bit about in Jeremiah 31, 31. God still has plans for them. And if we question that, we just need to continue in Romans 11, verses 28 and 29, when it tells us from the standpoint of the gospel, they, meaning the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the father's. So you see, they're still loved by God because of the promises God made to their fathers. And then a crucial verse in Romans eleven twenty nine: for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That means God does not revoke the promises he made to the Jews, to their fathers that he had just mentioned. He will, in fact, fulfill them because Romans 11 goes on to say, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, talking about the Jews, but because the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now, our merciful God that is talking about in Romans 11, and read the whole passage because it really clearly explains how God has not rejected Israel. But if God has shown mercy to us, why would he not show mercy to Israel, his chosen people? And then he finishes up the passage in Romans 11 by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of God, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, how can we question God and what he's doing? We can't. He has never given up on his chosen people. His gifts and callings are irrevocable. He loves the Jews. He's made promises and covenants to them, and he will fulfill them. Debbie, Romans 11, verses 17 through 24, refers to the fact that because the Jews were disobedient, it did give an opportunity to the Gentiles to be grafted into the promises. And aren't we glad that that happened? Because God promised the Messiah to all of the world. In the book of Isaiah, as well as in Luke chapter 2, we see reference to how God had planned to share the Messiah with all the nations. Unfortunately, it came from the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah. So Romans eleven seventeen reads, 
But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That's powerful. When it talks about the branches being broken off, that's giving the example of Israel as a tree. Obviously, deep roots and then this tree that has grown up. But some of the branches are broken off because they didn't believe. And we who are Gentiles, we're this wild olive tree that's apart from the tree of Israel. We called wild because we were of the world. We were not given those promises that were given to Israel, even though God did prophesy that we would receive them. But it says that we were grafted in among the Jews. So the Jewish tree still is there. The roots are there and we're grafted in among them. It's impossible truly to graft in a branch of one tree into another and have it grow because of the different internal aspects and the roots of the tree. But in this case, we're grafted in. That means we become part of God's original intent for the Jews. We don't take it over. The message of salvation isn't for this wild olive tree. It's still for the Jewish tree that we're grafted into. And then it tells us not to be arrogant against the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root. The root supports you. The root are the promises, specific, the messianic promises given to the Jews. We don't inherit, as I mentioned before, the land promises, but we do the messianic promise. When we're not supposed to be arrogant against the Jews, that means that we as Christians are not to say, oh, we're better than you. Oh, we've replaced you. Oh, God has a plan for us, but no longer for a plan for you. That's arrogant. And it's not supported in scripture. But he wants us instead to make them jealous. He says that in verse 11. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. In other words, if we are living as God intended us to live, then that would make the Jews and every other religious people jealous of us wanting to have what we have, wanting to have the joy and all of the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. People would want that if they saw it in us. This passage goes on to say, You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. In other words, the natural branches, the Jews, they chose not to accept Christ. There's Gentiles who won't accept Christ either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, opening the door again for us to have eternal life. And they also, this is the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they're going to be grafted in for God's able to graft them in again. God is saying here that we of Gentiles have a choice now to accept God's plan, his covenant plan of the Messiah and be grafted into the cultivated olive tree. And if the Jews will now believe, they too can be regrafted into the tree, even though they've been broken off. But it's a decision we all have to make, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of our sins, so that we might inherit eternal life. So what does that mean 
to you and me. It means that we study the Old and New Testament alike to find the character of God, knowing that he never changes his mind. He never lies. He doesn't give up on his people, Old Covenant or New Covenant, and be grateful that God grafted us in. And we also need to realize God's love and plans for the Jews, because if we do, it will change our attitude towards them. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in this world, but it will change as we understand God's love for the Jews so that we will have a love for them. We need to realize the future is all about Jesus Christ's return, and he's going to return for his chosen people, the Jews. Understanding all of that will give us a greater perspective for his love and his continued plans for his chosen people, Israel, the Jews. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.